John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 671.LK2270, certificate number 30782, The Jefferson Bible. Merry Christmas, John. Celebrating the birth of our Lord this week. Thank you. I thought, um, I mean, we're recording this back in November, so this is a bit of a fraud. Right, but you celebrate the birth of our Lord every week, and I, you know, I celebrate his entire catalog. You you like the deep cuts? I'm committed to Sparkle Motion. (laughs) (laughs) What would you say is in the entire catalog that I've I've missed? Uh, uh, the, the, The G's catalog? I mean, I've got the Book of Mormon. I've, I feel like I've got the collector's issue. Yeah, edition. you do. You you followed it's you've followed it straight along the line. But you know, I've dabbled in all the side streams. You've got the Gospel of Thomas. Yeah, I've got. I've been all the way out. I've, I've a bunch lived of boot, with, bootleg gospels. I've lived with the family in Cedro Woolley. <laughs> like I've heard all of the uh, all of the alternate versions. What does a uh, fairly, you know, a non-practicing person like yourself think of? Uh, you know, recently, um, it's interesting that you say non-practicing as opposed to some other, it's some other, like, usually it, someone who had a religious faith would describe somebody like me as something more than just not practicing. I didn't want to say non-religious because I, I felt you would jump in and insist that you well, have a great sense of the, of the divine and the mysterious. You and, notice and I jumped in anyway. <laughs> it didn't work. It didn't work. <laughs> Uh, what would you prefer? What nomenclature? Agnostic. Well, I don't even know. Agnostic. Diagnostic. Ag- agnostic. I'm twice as agnostic as everybody else. <laughs> you back at I. It's hard to take issue with the word agnostic because it really leaves. <laughs> right. It leaves every door open, right? It's like being in a big, big. Which should be, you know, it's, it's, that's a, a extremely viable answer to the great mystery of existence. Yeah, it seems. It seems like it. It like it fits me best. Okay. Because the, the, there does there does not appear to be any group on the internet of neckbeards who claim Yet. to be agnostics <laughs> and who chime in on every question like, oh, actually. So you're just trying to, you're hoping for a name that will avoid the fandoms you dislike. Yeah. Agnostic is just too general to, to actually be, to, for anyone to like try and turn it into a group. Yeah. Nobody would certainly, it, it doesn't seem to be the kind of label under which, uh, it's not a banner under which. Uh, 
extremists gather. No. <laughs> Moderate agnostic. I'm an agnostic and I've got something to say. I'm not a deist because that always felt like uh, like something the founders invented just to be agnostic but not get we'll, we'll not get in trouble. We'll look into that. Okay. Yeah. Um how does an agnostic like yourself react when, you know, recently at a at a rally somebody like Michael Flynn, did you see the headlines uh, oh, right. a couple who, weeks ago? Who believes that the there should be one religion in America? The, the quote is, we have to have one religion. Yeah. And when you ask Republicans, um, uh, you know, for example, why they want uh, why they want Donald Trump reinstated or, or believe that he secretly will be in some kind of a, an underground ceremony or whatever. You know, basically a third of all mainstream Republicans say because of attacks on religion. That's that's kind of the right. the basis of their political credo is that America does and should if it doesn't officially have a state religion. Right. Right. Well, I mean, in the words of Queen from their hit song I want it all and one, I want it now. <laughs> their hit song One Vision from 1986's <laughs> Uh, Not their finest hour. Little, little, uh, little regarded record, a kind of magic. Queen says, "Hey, one man, one goal. Ha, one mission, one heart, one soul. Just one solution, one flash of light. Yeah, one God, one vision." Do we know who who they were singing? First of all, which member of Queen wrote that song? Well, almost certainly, because um, they, they had they had top ten hits written by all four members, unlike most bands. They did. This does sound a little bit like a Freddie Freddie Mercury song, it and does. I don't know if you know this about him, but he is a Zoroastrian. That's correct. So I was wondering if this was a song about. He's talking about Zoroaster, Zoro, the Zoroastrian <laughs> god Ahura Mazda, right? Ahura the, Mazda, the bringer of light. Uh, one flesh, one bone, run true religion. One voice, one hope, one real decision. Give me one vision, yeah. So I'm not sure what he was going for there. It appe- the song appears to be a group effort. It, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't one where one of them brought it in. But I also feel like REM said that uh, they want um... Moses went walking with a staff of wood. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, no. Uh, he wants a he wants a new religion. Oh, I see. Oh no, new religion. That's by in excess. He's losing. Michael Stipe is losing. Michael Stipe loses his religion, but it's it's in excess that wants a new religion. Yeah, maybe they also lost theirs, and that's why they needed. I mean, if I'm at the store to get a new Duraflame log, it's because I've lost my Duraflame log or used. Or maybe used. they used their old religion, and now they're now they're out. Anyway, these are the these are the three songs that represent the Trinity <laughs> in my belief system. <laughs> Queen, R.E.M., and In Excess. It's interesting that you would go to the, yeah, A Kind of Magic. Yeah. Not, oh, yeah. Not, not everybody's favorite Queen record. <laughs> no, it's a great record, though. <laughs> it's got a lot of hits on it, including One Vision. Uh, one Vision. I kind of find that worrying. That's becoming a mainstream thread the in idea. American political discourse. That Look, we all know, wink, wink, that there is one religion, and it's about time we uh, we put some muscle behind that. Well, that's always been true. It's just... There's always been that segment of the American right, and um, it's just that now all we all we have are the extremes. There are no, there's no uh, mainstream anymore. They're so all, they're all old retirees. It'll be like this guy was a lawyer in the Bush administration, and he thinks the whack jobs are whack jobs. Yeah, that guy does not have a. Um, he doesn't have a Twitter feed. He doesn't have a, what do you call it when you got a constituency? That right. guy doesn't have, he doesn't represent any voters. Not anymore. There were always people like Michael Flynn and unfortunately always in the U.S. military. I mean, famously 
the Air Force Academy. Uh, <laughs> you see this every show. Uh, do I? Have I said this over and over? I think the theme of the show is that you think the Air Force, the Air Force is full of religious nuts. Uh, nuts. Yeah, it is. And I, it's not in Top Gun. Which characters in Top Gun are religious nuts? Goose. Um, they're Navy pilots. Oh, you're right. They're Navy. The so Navy. The, the Navy's the not full angel, of religious nuts. The Blue nuts. Angels are free of religion. <laughs> Everybody in the Navy is just hanging out. They're deists at most. Oh, you've seen the Village People song. Everybody in the Navy is just there to have a good time. They're just there to have a good time. Yeah, they're. It's a. It's a hedonistic, not particularly heteronormative world in the Navy. And I feel like the Marines. Have the Marines are basically their own religion? They just—they're they, grunting. Yeah, they, they just, worship grunts. They, they worship the they're Marines. Like Tim Allen. It's the—it's the Air Force who are all uh, like super evangelical Colorado weirdos, and then the Army, who, um, well, I mean, it's the people that weren't smart enough to try another branch. No, I feel like a lot of the people in the Army are actually Catholic, and we just don't talk about it. It's like the Supreme Court of. Of the of the armed services, yeah. But I, now that we've Flynn, now that we've angered everyone except for go. non-Americans, well, we haven't talked about the Coast Guard, but, uh, but uh, let's I've, leave that for I another. I feel like show. Omnibus is pro Coast Guard for sure. Oh, okay, here in the Northwest, we depend on the Coast Guard. I was a little worried that yeah. we were not pro Coast Guard. No, 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 we're we're very pro Coast Guard. Um, yeah, because you don't want one of those big perfect storm waves coming. No, think about all of the think about uh, the downeaster Alexa or, all or the, whatever. All the crab the the crab fishermen that go missing every year. <laughs> Yeah, because of the the smile face, the fight, smiley face killer is killing crab <laughs> So the tension between, I mean, it, I think that there's a a, uh, a temptation to say that you know all the church and state stuff was solved by the founding, mm. and now we're creeping into a weird area. That's not strictly true. I think a lot of people's conception of colonial American religion is wrong in a couple respects. Oh, lay it on us. I mean, for one thing... As, um, as the representative of, of, on this show of the people, uh, <laughs> well, school me. Is, that the, is the people a religious cult that you believe I'm a member of? Cap- I am. Capital P? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we live up in Mount Vernon, upstate, Mount Vernon, Washington. Upstate, no, I was in upstate New York with the people. Oh, the and, people. Uh, so, I mean, for one thing, even though the federal government is constitutionally, um, you know, there's the, the establishment clause separates the federal government from religion. That did not keep individual states from doing so. Uh, states had state religions for decades. What is the greatest of all the state religions? <laughs> A lot of people don't know this, but Connecticut was Hindu for uh, <laughs> for most of the 1790s. Uh-huh. No, uh, it's actually Massachusetts had congregationalism as the official State religion of the Commonwealth, or Commonwealth religion of the state, if right, you will. Right, Like until 1833. Right. Well, they were trying to, A, keep the Catholics out, and that's even before the Irish arrived, uh, and B, there were, Massachusetts is where all of the Shakers and the, like, there were there were all of, all those fringe right. uh, nutjob religions were all happening in Western Mass, <laughs> front, nutjob religions of the time. Oh, yeah. We're going to get into the, before, we're getting into the good second great awakening ones too. Before the that, real That's kind of my bag. 18, 1830 changed uh, the game. But, you know, it's ironic because Massachusetts is also the place where a lot of these people came. For religious be- freedom. Because they had unconventional religions. Right. And they were like, no way. Uh, we just want. The one. We just want blue crab and uh, a pure religion with no fun or Christmas. And that wasn't true of every state. I mean, as we'll see, Virginia famously had a... Anglican church, right? Well, Virginia had a government, an official government uh, firewall between religion and and, uh, 
and government that dates back to 1786. Oh, that's exciting. Thomas, good job, Virginia. Good job, Thomas Jefferson. It was like one of the works of which he is proudest. It is mentioned on his tombstone uh, uh, where his presidency is not. Huh. His tombstone mentions, I think, the Declaration of Independence, uh, founding the University of Virginia, and this freedom of religion statute in his home state. But he left the presidency off. Humble brag. So typical. I've done so much good stuff that no, you know, we don't yeah. even have to mention Lewis and Clark. <laughs> <laughs> I invented the dumb waiter, but we don't have to get into that. Mike here. drop. <laughs> um, and some religious scholars uh, have produced numbers to the effect that our idea of uh, of colonial America is extremely devout are not true. Rodney Stark at the University of Washington says that in 1776, only 17% of Americans were church members. Interesting. And there's some kind of cultural factors you can look at there. It's a sparsely settled place where people might worship at home. Right. Um, it's an extremely, much of the frontier is extremely male, you know, uh, masculinity at that time, you know, femininity at that time being the traditional trait associated with church attendance. You right. Know, once we get women in these places, we'll, we'll all settle down and stop drinking the corn liquor with two Ks and we'll all go to church. But it was a component of a lot of denominations of Protestantism that people were able to witness directly to God without intercession uh, by clergy. Yeah, I'm sure all these people, if you ask these people if they believe in God, they would not even have considered an alternative. Yeah, they, they, would, um, they would take off their buckskin hat and kneel down using their uh, blunderbuss as a, as a crutch and say, <laughs> God... In my in my battles to get today, please let me prevail. <laughs> the um, but insofar as the picturing church congregations as a building block of American society, apparently not quite what we would imagine. Right, um, those numbers peaked. If you're looking at traditional Gallup polls of who calls themselves a church member, that peaked around the end of World War II at seventy six percent. Yeah. And uh, has been dropping steadily ever since. Famously made headlines just in the last couple of years where it dropped below 50%. For the, for the first, first time, time in yes. a long time. Yes. But, but this, not the first time ever. Exactly. If you, if you believe this kind of uh, revisionist research about early America, where before the Second Great Awakening in the 1830s, which is where you get all the great, sure. uh, the great uh, modern crazy religions, you get your Adventists and your Latter-day Saints and your uh, whatever became Jehovah's Witnesses and your... Oneidian. Oneidian sex cults and right. all the rest. Um, that was kind of the burst of new fervor. Um, but which, even then, when you think of the great stories of the mid-19th century, the robber barons, the railroad magnates, the the prairie uh, schooners, the gold rush. They're not stories of devotion? No, and you when you think of like the religious... Even it, it, throughout the frontier, they years. kind of seem like a scolding minority. Yeah, it's uh, every every Western. It's just some school marm that's with a tambourine. Yeah, shaking her her bonnet at you. Back east, it feels like it's uh, the province of black clad matrons. Um, it does feel like not like like suspicion against religion is a or contempt for organized religion is part of the nineteenth century. American frontier myth- mythos. Thank you for saying frontier. I, I, just, I don't know if I can endorse mythos, but I feel like I feel like frontier has become part of the lexicon of omnibus, and for me to say frontier would be just to just I'd be churlish. I've been determinedly saying frontier on Je- on Jeopardy uh, when I host because 
Do you think that you used to say Frontier? Is there, and in your 74 winning Jeopardies, do you feel like you said Frontier at any point? Oh, probably. It was a Final Jeopardy response in one of my games. Really? Actually, yeah. It was about, uh, you know, so, quoting some famous historian saying that uh, it was disappearing or something. And the answer was, what is the Frontier? And, and so you said it out loud. Oh, no, you write it down, I guess. That's oh, good and then, he, then Alex says it. Yeah, I wonder, but I wonder if, you know, Alex was Canadian. Maybe he said it the Shatnerian way. <laughs> I pointed out to somebody at Jeopardy that um, I got it from William Shatner's Strong Ah uh, Frontier, which, by the way, you can hear in the new Kenneth Branagh movie, Belfast. You can hear William Shatner doing the intro, and he, he absolutely says Frontier as I say it. <laughs> but, um, and I was like, do you think that's a Montreal pronunciation? And uh, the Jeopardy writer, uh, Billy, the head writer, said, oh, uh, that's weird, because in Canada, they actually say Montreal. That's the French-Canadian thing. Montreal. So maybe they traded the the hard ah, huh. the hard aunt from Frontier, and uh, and lost it in Montreal. It's, uh, it seems unfair for Jeopardy to have Frontier questions, because you're such a child of the Frontier. Well, I'm not you're answering gonna, them anymore. You're going to know, oh, right, I guess I'm, so. I'm above the fray. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean back when I was on? What are you? Why, why I, got are you a, I got a Daily Double once about Brigham Young, and I was like, yeah. Yeah. Finally. Kapow. And off. then you were like, oh, no, I didn't. <laughs> uh, what, do you have, what do you have against Mythos? Oh, I just always said Mythos. Well, sure, you would. Mythos that... sounds like you're hypercorrecting. I, uh, on Jeopardy <laughs> once, I was just a couple weeks ago, I was trying to say antibiotic, and I kind of... Antibiotic? I, well, I, I was like, you know, antibiotic is a little... An, sorry, anti... Antibiotic is a little more cultured, but I pushed it too far and said antibiotic. Oh boy! Like rhymes with biatch. Did they run back the tape and make you do it again? I noticed it, and the, and uh, and I said, "Can we do that one again?" And they were like, "Well, we were going to," but then we looked it up, and it seems like antibiotic. Antibiotic's not wrong, and I was like, "Yeah, but it's extremely it's weird. extremely wrong." They made me redo culinary. What did you? How did you pronounce it? Well, I said culinary, and they were like, "You you really you don't want to say culinary?" And I was like, "Fine, let's do it again." Yeah, I just, I just want to say the less attention-getting pronunciation. I believe that I, at some point, transitioned to culinary, and I don't know why. I feel like slapping myself every time I say it. Was it when you got it. into QAnon? Uh, no, a long so time so before so that. So when you were in Dealey Plus? <laughs> QAnon. <laughs> QAnon. But today we've got this kind of... It's kind of a reactionary revisionism from the other side, which holds that all the founding fathers were, of course, super-duper devout and have everything in common with your brand of evangelical Protestantism ma'am who shops it at this Christian bookstore. And that's where you get those weird John McNaughton paintings of, uh, right. Of, um, what, uh, George Washington and, and Jesus together, um, um, running a Harley, punching out Obama. <laughs> yeah. Running a, running a Harley through the Obama white house or whatever it is they do. It's willfully ignoring that wonderful oil painting of George Washington, completely adorned in Masonic, uh, like jewelry, <laughs> wearing his cloak and his all seeing eye. It's like, if you want to know what George Washington thought, yeah, a lot of people don't know this, but he was crossing the Delaware to get away from church. <laughs> he was like, Christmas Eve, I am not going to that midnight mass. Well, I'm going to get on a boat. I've, I've long held that there's a weird, um, there's something in, the, in, the, in just media and the way we write about ourselves and think about ourselves, uh, because of the, the, the explosion of it in the 20th century, those of us in the latter half of the 20th century and 21st century have, have a myopia where we can't really look before World War II to understand how people were, right? Like You assume the Eisenhower era is the epitome of old-timey America. Right, and that everything, yeah. that, that, that all of the 60s, the liberation, um, we're coming from 
the peak or the, the status quo of 1955. And so there's never been a cooler, hipper uh, people than there are now yeah. because we can't see past the war. But of course, in 1928... They were drinking absinthe out of each other's uh, yeah, sex toys. It was a it was a full sex cult, and I feel like I mean everywhere. I feel like <laughs> literally everywhere. Like pre industrial revolution, we really have no idea what the division of labor was between the sexes. We have no idea how devout people or how devout people were, how sexy they were, what people did in the afternoons. Even if we had records, a lot of it would be private. You know, even if oh. people talk a good game to their minister. You know, do they go home in great confusion and doubt, and or do they not think about religion at all? Is it just a is it just a Sunday social pretense? In a time of pre literacy for most people, right. nobody's keeping journals. But also, there's there's just as much evidence that people were waking up, you know, after their first sleep and going over and having um, like wife swapping with their neighbors. There's just as much evidence for that as that that they were all terrified that God was going to come in on a white horse. But the thing about the founding fathers is they left Oh, they wrote it all they down. They left writings behind. We know exactly what they thought about religion and uh it's not particularly a secret that it was not conventional Eisenhower era Protestantism. Right. Or even uh, anything we anything like what we think of as as uh what would you say enlightenment? Yeah, the thinkers among them were products of the enlightenment. Right. So Jefferson was introduced, Thomas Jefferson in particular, the subject of today's show, the sexy redheaded subject of today's show. Thank goodness. Here we are at 20 minutes in. You're having my record. Yeah, I I, I try to get there by 20 minutes. Um, He was introduced as a kid, you know, as a teenager to the British empiricists, you know, like here's who you got to look at. John Locke and Isaac Newton and and all the rest, uh, uh, Francis Bacon. And, you know, and it's very hard for him to read those guys and then keep his biblical literalism that he would have been hearing in church. And so as his life went on, he gradually became less and less conventional and literal a believer. Um, He lost his belief in the Trinity first because that just wouldn't make sense to the empiricists. How can God be both three and one? You know, a mystic would love that contradiction. Right. But not an Enlightenment rationalist. That's got to go. This is all coming from Descartes uh, and, a, and a, a sense that if you were an educated person, you're, you're also a polymath, right? Science and literature and philosophy are all— It's all the same. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not— You can't compartmentalize in those days. Right. So if you— yeah, If, if you've, you've discovered a new truth from Descartes, you, you're going to have to apply it to your, to your uh, Bible learning. Right. If you believe in gravity— you also need to kind of apply that to what how you feel about the Lord. And you've got to take into account all the occasions in the Bible, which, you know, you have previously taken as history, in which these laws of nature appear to be violated. Right. Um, so Jefferson lost his his faith in Old Testament miracles first, and then it— It's good. He's working his way, working his way through working the miracles. Working up in time. <laughs> and, gradu- and I guess, he you know, he tries to keep a carve-out for the New Testament— Loaves and fishes and whatnot, as you do, and eventually he he loses that as well. It just he just can't, you know, as he becomes a committed deist, somebody who believes well. Clearly, the universe is beautiful and complex, and, a, and an intelligent creator started it up, but um, but it doesn't make sense for him to continue to intercede because we don't see evidence of that, and it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a beautiful perfection if he kept stepping in to make the sun stand still 
or the or the you know the rainbow flood or whatever yeah it's a clockwork yeah and then he starts believing in black jesus <laughs> you think that's is that always the next sign? I feel like as soon as you realize that Jesus was black, then it's it's got to change your take. I mean, he's had some pretty apparently uh, pretty life changing multiracial sex. Yeah, in, in Thomas Jefferson's case. Yeah, um, in a problematic way. For sure, he Tom was, has. He was the he was the legal owner of the sex partner. You. Yeah, little little, um, little creepy. Yeah, I don't want to hold him up as a. As a <laughs> Model of diversity because he was attracted to one of his slaves. But you know what? Just like Dave Chappelle's comedy, uh, the standards at the time. Uh, <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> we're we're going to give him a pass, I guess. No, I mean, no. Jefferson and many of the other founding fathers were slave owners. And here on the Omnibus, we are against that then and now. Also against Nazism. I think we've record. established that. Uh, many times, but let's just, because just get we, it in there. We mentioned World War II just now, and we did not add that we were against Hitler, rooting for the Allies, also against slavery. Um, Jefferson, for the most part, kept quiet about where his deism had brought him later in life. Um, we kind of imagine that, oh yeah, back then he's Thomas Jefferson; he can say whatever he wants. He wrote the damn Declaration of Independence, sure. But in fact, insofar as his deistic religious beliefs were known, they actually were a political liability for him. At the time? At the time. When he ran for president in 1800, you had all kinds of heated pamphleteers calling him this D-D infidel and promising that the Republic would hit up, you know, wreck, be wrecked upon shoals of incest, murder, rape, and miscegenation if a, if a, if a deist like Thomas Jefferson were to, were to become president. But wait, that all did happen. Well, he became president. Right, and also rape and miscegenation and murder and... I think those were already oh, happening. Oh, they were happening. Those have yeah. been happening since the 15th century. But I, don't, what if, what I don't know if there was some new, <laughs> new burst of depravity caused by a deist being president. What but, about, it's fun, but it's funny that like this kind of thing that we imagine as kind of a Reagan-era Ralph Reed thing was actually spittle-flecked pamphleteers of the 1790s were playing the same game with their with their religious opponents. For sure, and almost certainly coming from the Appalachian culture from whence it still comes, um, to, to, throw, to throw some shade on, on the Appalachian Scots-Irish. You just have to say Appalachian and then they don't mind. Appalachian. If, if you say Appalachian, they'll give you a pass. Uh, what about his contemporaries, Adams and Madison and Hamilton and Monroe? I mean, none of them were thumping their Bibles either. I mean, Adams is an interesting case because he does come from Puritan New England stock. Right. And I'm sure, yeah, I think he had more conventional he was, he church-going was beliefs. Church-going. Yeah, than, than Jefferson. You know, Jefferson... Um, but he signed off on a separation of church and state. He wasn't trying to make America a, uh, a theocracy. Correct. Um, but in his, you know, certainly you know, religious in his private life and in his, you know, in his public statements would have talked more about, you know, um, talked more about a, you know, a creator and a, a personal creator and, uh, right, right. you know, the, the, his Christian motivations for his actions. Where, but, whereas, um, Ben Franklin was playing slip and slide with a bunch of <laughs> French courtesans. Whereas Jefferson would always say things like nature's God, nature's God, where he would, you know, he sounds devout, 
When you think about it, you realize he's trying to thread a very thin needle. He's talking about Pam. But <laughs> <laughs> no, he's talking about the perfect clockmaker who right. wound up the universe, and we really can't, we really can't know anything about him because then he he took a break. Well, so that's fascinating because there's no American president in the 20th or 21st century who could get away saying nature's god. No, there, I mean our most. Religion-unfriendly president was Donald Trump, and he still, you know, waved Bibles around. Sure. Upside down. (laughs) (laughs) You got to do it. Obama not sworn in on a Quran, by the way, if you're writing it to tell us that. No, he was a devout Christian. Obama went to church every Sunday and could speak biblical language a lot more fluidly than his successor, I think. Um, And George uh, W. Bush was famously— Born again. Born again. Uh, it saved him from from the bottle and the needle and the coeds and whatever else he was indulging done. in before Laura made sure he found Jesus. And then Bill Clinton was at least uh, nominally a, a a Christian. I bet I bet George Herbert Walker Bush was the last president that was like, huh? Oh yeah, Barbara made me go oh, to church yeah, we again. We go to church, sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just part of public political life that you're at a certain level. You're expected to. Put up a front of uh, regular religious practice. Whether, or, or actually deeply believe. No, in many of these cases, um, like George W. Bush, I'm 100% sure that guy was saved from alcoholism and addiction by the good book. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that makes the invasion of Iraq a great idea. Do you believe, I'm just saying he's sincere. Do you believe, and this is, you know, this is endless, uh, endless like coffee table speculation, but did you take Obama's religiosity sincerely? He seems like he, uh, you know, sure. Ivy League. Obama's great, but like hipster. But like somebody like that, um, like he's trying to thread the same needle that any modern intellectually savvy person is, where they're in politics and they know the. Well, but also like you know, I do have some intuition that there's you know the 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 pattern of religion in my family history and in my personal life is very important to me right and yet you know who can really who can really have that kind of certainty anymore you know i've got all these christmas decorations wrapped in (laughs) tissue paper in a box in the attic (laughs) bring them down every year we all love the smell of pine boughs sure the twinkling but what does that say about the divinity of the historical christ (laughs) i mean there's there's a pretty big gulf there there is and nobody in public life can really i mean i guess if you're if you're a tort, if you're Johnny Cash, you can talk about how the Lord touched you, but still sometimes there's a lot of darkness there. And yep. I don't know if you know if you're Ingmar Bergman, you can talk about God's distance. If you you're know, if you're the president of the United States, you cannot share these meanderings with the public. Howling Wolf's mom uh, rejected him because he played the devil's music all the way until the end of her life. Wow! When he was in his sixties or whatever, fifties or sixties, he bumped into her. When he was on tour and he was like, mama. And she said, I have no son. She said, I reject you because you haven't, because you turned from Christ. It was one of the things that broke Holland Wolf's heart. Why was she even at the show? Well, she wasn't. He was down in, he was down in, on tour in Kentucky or something. And comes by the holler. Well, no, I think he went to a restaurant and somebody was like, you're Holland Wolf. I know your mom. She works across the street. Oh, wow. And it was like, I haven't seen her in 20 years. I'm kind, whole, of, whole story. I'm kind of surprised your mom didn't disown you when you turned to the, the devil's rhythm. She did disown me, but 
but uh, but I kept coming around because I didn't have a you know because the laundromat was further from the, than her house was. That's why that's kind of my like, son. That's right. That's why your son comes around. <laughs> Mom, is there anything? Hi, slam. Is there anything in the fridge? It did not appear to be disqualifying in Jefferson's. You know, even though people made much of his rationalistic enlightenment beliefs, the fact that he didn't attend church regularly doesn't seem to have been a um, like a talking point. For his um, for his opponents, for example, right? Um, you know, when people asked him what his denomination was, he would say, "I am a sect of myself." Oh which, boy! Come on, Thomas Jefferson, settle down. Yeah, um, smarty pants. But it, it doesn't mean he didn't take religion seriously. He did. Uh, in 1804, while he was president, he bought two copies of the King James version from a Philadelphia bookseller. How old was the King James version at that point? It's a 17th century text, so you know it would have been the go-to English translation for, right. uh, for early 19th century Americans. It's also Harvey Danger's acclaimed second record, King James Version. Oh, is that true? Yeah. Is it named for LeBron James? That would be very forward-thinking of him. It is. To commemorate him, even, even in his be- youth. Even before he was in high school. Uh, let me get this right. The date of the King James Version is published in 1611. So very oh, early. Oh, 70s so yeah, quite quite a bit older. It's three. It's almost three. Uh, it's almost two hundred years old at this point. So yeah, he's not buying it hot off the presses. He's not like, oh boy, there's a new Bible out. <laughs> Got to hit B. Dalton. No, he buys two copies of the King James version, and he wants two because he stays up late in the White House for a night or two. Um, cut, annotates them. Cut even worse. Cuts them up and makes a ransom letter. <laughs> <laughs> Dear John Adams. <laughs> I have your son, John Quincy. His mutton chops are nuts. No, he, uh, he kind of puts together his own New Testament pastiche, which he calls the philosophy of Jesus of Nazareth. So he takes all of the miracles out and just talks about the real day-to-day life of Jesus, the, the carpentry and the... It's more about the carpentry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's kind of a DIY text. <laughs> <laughs> the danger. <laughs> um, a lot of fishing tips. Uh-huh. No, he, uh, we don't actually have, this text has not survived. Oh, no. His little arts and crafts project, his little Etsy shop. Do you want to know a sad story? Okay. When Kurt Cobain died, I, it's I, sad already. Yeah, I had not been an especially pronounced Nirvana fan. I was contemptuous of them. I thought it was. Because you love Pearl Jam so I, much. Uh, You're all. <laughs> <laughs> you were always a Pearl Jam show. I know. No, I you, thought, were, you were a tad guy. I thought all that stuff was teeny bopper music, and I was I was too I was much too serious for uh, for Pearl Jam and Nirvana. But when Kurt Cobain died, it affected me. You know, I was shocked at how it affected me. I was devastated. Um, I didn't know why. I couldn't figure it out. And I was still on drugs at the time. And at one point, and it took. I was inconsolate for. Um, for weeks, mm-hmm. just trying to figure out what 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 that meant and what to do now. Um, I'd always felt like Kurt had done a kind of a bad job of being the sp- spokesman of a generation, and uh, but then it, it was undeniable that he was. I was at somebody's house, uh, and it was a time when I was crashing on people's floors, and the person had gone to work. And I was there alone in their apartment. Um, you know, I woke up at some point out of a haze. And as I was kind of sifting 
around the house, I found this stack of Rolling Stones from the 90s. And I started flipping through them and realized that- Sherilyn Fenn is hot. She's so hot. From about, you know, late 1991 to 1994, every issue of Rolling Stone had a something about Nirvana. And in some cases, lots and lots of stuff about Nirvana. And I was wrestling with what fame meant and what fame had done to Kurt and how he'd done a bad job of being famous, but fame had also worked this thing on him and what was my relationship to fame and all this. And this day, admittedly high on morning drugs, I sat and cut Kurt Cobain, the name, out of every article in three years of... If that had been my house <laughs> and my collection of Spin magazine, I would have been pissed. Three years of Rolling Stones. And at the end of the whole process, I had these demolished Rolling Stones and this bowl of... You could play the world's most boring game of celebrity. Kurt Cobain, Kurt Cobain. Okay, this is the lead singer of Nirvana. <laughs> and then when I, when, I, when I realized what I had done and I had this bowl of Kurt Cobain's... Um, that was when I realized that drugs were bad. Is and that true? There was a moment of clarity? Oh, no, okay. I'm afraid not. I, oh. it took, I, well, on, on one level, I already knew drugs were bad. But was there any epiphany at all to seeing all the Kurt Cobains together? No. Uh, what I realized was... This is just a story about you um, I had demolished, vandalizing yeah, magazines. I demolished all this person's uh, Rolling Stones. It was going to be impossible to explain why. And I think I just swept it all into the... Can't you, just say, can't you just say morning drugs? That covers it? Uh, morning drugs, bro. At the time, I think I had exhausted everybody's patience for me explaining something by saying morning drugs. That does happen, I hear. So we don't have this copy of, of this Jeffersonian biblical pastiche, but he wrote to John Adams later um, why he did it. What was it? What do you mean? Well, did he take the 600 yeah, exactly. page Bible and reduce it down to. Uh, it, it, like... was, it was just the gospel. So he. Oh, okay. It, he, philosophy of Jesus of Nazareth. And it's interesting that he says Jesus of Nazareth, implying that. He's a real dude. It's a guy. It's a historical guy with a hometown. He doesn't say Jesus Christ or Jesus the Messiah or. Right. Um, you know, he leaves divinity out of it altogether. And he says, you know, he was telling Adam, he told Adams he wanted to do a kind of archaeology. He wanted to rescue Jesus from all these misguided priests who had had what he called pure and unsophisticated doctrines. And he wanted to rescue the most sublime and benevolent code of morals ever offered to man, which had been embedded in the current Bible as diamonds in dung hills. Hmm. That's one of my favorite Jesus, uh, Judas Priest songs. What, what, uh, but he didn't do what I would assume he would have done, especially given his library— he didn't try and find source material other than the King James Bible. He didn't try to find... Yeah, that's interesting. There were no Apocrypha probably widely available, but he didn't do like a translation from the Greek or... No, and his library might have had some early resources like that. Sure. But I guess when it comes down to it, he's still a right. an 18th century dude who thinks, well, here's where good philosophy comes from. It comes from the Bible. Right. You just um, have to separate all the... Yeah. The Council of Nicaea out of it. Man, I'm looking at this quote, and this is fantastic. This is this is Jefferson on his on his religious meanderings. If a history of his life, if a history of Jesus' life can be added, written with the same view of the subject, his view, you know, he wants this precious morsel of ethics out. The world will see after the fog shall be dispelled, in which for 14 centuries he Jesus has been enveloped by jugglers to make money of him. Oh, jugglers. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, 
That's, I mean, I've heard a lot of mean things said about religious people, but ju- the Pope is a juggler? I feel like we've done an episode on being enveloped in jugglers. <laughs> enveloped by jugglers is a pretty good band name. When the genuine characters will be exhibited, which they have dressed up in the rags of an imposter, the world, I say, will at last see the immortal merit of this first of human sages. Okay. So there's a lot going on there. He's like, I need to do this for Christianity. Like, right. Think how great Jesus is going to be when I when I get rid of all the the made up later stuff. It does feel like there's a lot of that. Let's rescue Jesus from the church talk. Often it's done by cool youth pastors. Yeah, (laughs) it is. But like, really, it's not that great of a step to realize that there's no way to know Jesus without the intercession of 2000 years of church. I mean, it's not like... Well, even historically, we know that, you know, these firsthand documents, so-called, that Jefferson is cutting and pasting here are all written a century or more after the fact. Right, right. Um, uh, by people who never knew him or right. never knew anybody who knew him. Right. So it's just, it's funny that that, that that is always the impulse, but there's no way to, Jefferson couldn't have just said, um, well, I guess, I guess what happened later in recent years is that everybody's like, no, 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 it's Buddha. It's Buddha that's really the the, those yeah, are the documents we need to turn that, to. It's interesting that you know we're begin we're getting to the part the beginning of the century when that could have been an option for him to be like, well, let's see what these mages of the east have to say, right? Um, but you know, he I guess he does say Jesus is the first of human sages. Oh, because he would have had to contend with Muhammad. Well, that's an interesting way to put it. Does he mean first and foremost? Like he's kind of he's threading oh. a needle again, where that could mean you know the first and most divine thinker. Sure, because of course, maybe you think he's God and okay. There was already a Moses at this point, right? Or does he mean first of human sages, like you know, the forerunner of you know the great thinkers to come? Um, yeah, oh, oh, yeah, and right. And by sage, he could be saying, yeah, like not a prophet. Plato's a sage, right. baby. Um, so yeah, this is kind of his very open-minded take on Jesus. And again, we do not have the results of his razor blade. But Socrates would have predated Jesus. It's it's true. Like if he's thinking about ancient Greek philosophy, he would have known that Jesus is not the first chronologically. Well, and he would have known that. Yes. So I feel like that's a smackdown. No, (laughs) no. If you're going to say sages. But he could be sages to come, you know, it could be, you know, he could be saying Aquinas and, and... All the, all the way up to Newton and and Locke and Rousseau, you know? Right. Um, if he's just thinking of Jesus as a thinker. So we don't have this work, so I can't really opine on it. But this was not the end of Jefferson's attempts to remake the Bible. Can you um, imagine if you found this in a thrift store? Well, this is kind of what happened, interestingly. Go on. In uh, Much later, after his presidency, in the fall of 1819 into the winter of 1820, Jefferson is now 77 years old. Um, retired in Monticello. Uh, he now that he's got more time, you know, this is a his original project was something he just did in a in a in a night or two while he's high. <laughs> I was going to say in office contending with affairs of state. No, super stoned. Evening drugs. What would you say Jefferson's <laughs> jug, drug of choice was in the White House? You know, he's out in the garden. He's probably brushing up against. He's got uh, all kind of nightshade family. Yeah, he's licking toads, and you know, he's a. <laughs> He's a man of his time. Yeah, he's a botanist. Mm-hmm. He knows which mushrooms to lick. Mm-hmm. In 1820, he acquires six Bibles this time. This is going to be three times as good. <laughs> okay. So now he's got two different Greek-Latin Bibles, two different French Bibles, and then two English Bibles. And he takes a razor blade, and he assembles what he kind of a successor work, a more careful version of his, of his 1804 attempt, 
This version he calls the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. So to call it the Jefferson Bible, as we have done in our show intro, is kind of a, a later and, and uh, maybe, um, what's the word for when something's uh, not chronologically accurate? Uh, anachronistic mm-hmm. um, coinage. And he puts together this, this version we, we have today. So we know what the aims were. And it's exactly what you're saying. It's a version of the life of Christ that has no miraculous or divine content whatsoever. Hmm. Um, Christ is born, but not necessarily to a virgin. Mm-hmm. Gabriel never appears to Mary. It begins with the census, the same as the book of Matthew or Luke might. But, you know, it's just two, you know, two uh, young parents in a stable. Right. Jesus grows up. Um, he says some wise things. Jesus, you know, teaches the people. Yeah, it's all about Jesus talking. He, Jesus goes to a temple and teaches some people. He gets older and uh, gets some disciples and teaches them uh, some stuff. Some crowds start to follow him, so he gets on a mountain and teaches them some stuff. Uh, Holds up an eye of a needle and tries to put a rich person through there and a camel and all the the science. All the allegorical content is there, but God is only mentioned kind of in passing. Jesus will pray to God occasionally. Um, in kind of a colloquial way, mentions of the temple as the house of God or the grace of God being on him are still there. We talk um, more about God here on Omnibus than Jesus did in the Jefferson that's version. A, that's exactly right. Um, because this is what Jefferson wants. He wants a version of Christ that's kind of divorced from this idea that we have to take him as a divine worker of miracles. And this is really going a lot farther than just, well, you know— he wouldn't change water into wine. I mean, he never says this, but he's really brushing into get uh, brushing up against, and maybe he's inspired in a more general way, and he's not actually the son of God in any kind of literal. He's way. trying to make him into a philosopher. If 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 he exists, if he lived today, we would know that he wasn't uh, this kind of superstitious person. He was just a wise carpenter. It's much more non-threatening. Smart hippie. It's much more non-threatening because then you don't have any idea that. Um, you know, God came to Earth with a specific one-time-only mission in mind. It, it puts Jesus, as you say, in a in a pantheon of other thinkers, right? Which I think Jefferson preferred. Yeah, the idea of God coming to Earth and being crucified. You know, the the virtue of the Jefferson Bible is that it's very short. So I, I looked at it. I looked at it yesterday. I read, read the, the whole, whole thing. thing. Yeah, it's <laughs> like I can. This PDF is twenty pages long. Oh, cool! It ends with the crucifixion and burial. Right. He, the end. Jesus does not come back to life. Right, because he is not. Spoiler alert! He is not God. <laughs> spoiler alert! He is not God made manifest on Earth for some uniquely redemptive plan. Right, he's just here to say a bunch of stuff. And boy, if we listen to that stuff, we'd all be better off. Yes. And Jefferson appears to have been very sincere about that. For the rest of his life, he would read from, uh, we believe, this actual version of the Bible every night before bed. He produced his own Bible and then spent the rest of his life trying to glean its its import and its uh, wisdom. You know, it would be it would be something for a, a person who lived in a time when everybody knew the Bible and and referred to it constantly as a political document, as a social document. I they, mean, they all say land of Goshen when a when a <laughs> when a bottle falls in the the bottle of jar of jam falls in the larder. They do. These would be the literary references that wouldn't just be in every book you ever read, but they would be the first thing that sprung to mind whenever you had an experience. You could just move to a midwestern state, John. This still exists. Like you, <laughs> like being from Seattle, you're like you're like explaining like, this is incredible. A or you could go to any Walmart in America, right. and you would still be in that 
world. I mean, Jeopardy, because it's a, a 50 or 60-year-old media property, still has a lot of Bible material. Right. And it annoys young Blue State viewers who are like, who oh, the hell would know? Another Bible category? <laughs> what about, hello, uh, the Quran or Buddha? Right. Um, or the collected work of uh, Lizzo. But Jeopardy, <laughs> but Jeopardy comes from an older time yeah. when that's cultural literacy. And those are the people who are still watching Jeopardy. And they can kind of perpetuate their own canon. Right. You know, like, if Jeopardy continues to ask about opera and Shakespeare, then thank goodness, like, the viewers know some opera and Shakespeare. But that would be fascinating... I mean, you can understand why Jefferson would want this, right. because he only has what he, you know, he's he's a fish that that this is doesn't realize he he's go. in water, it's right? As far as he can go in the bowl, yeah. You know? So he he wants this document, but it's but he only has this source material to work with, and he does not frame it as you know. Maybe this is because he knows the kind of people who his neighbors are, but he does not frame it as any kind of religious revolt. He's saying, this is how to be a true Christian. Right. Like this is, this is the service, the religious service that I'm doing, even though I don't go to Unitarian services every Sunday, like my friend, Mr. Adams or Mr. Madison. Um, And so how did he disseminate his work? He did not. It seems weird that he wouldn't have printed up a hundred copies. Maybe that's the sign that he knew it was a little bit beyond the, the boundaries that would have been accepted. It feels time. almost like a zine. <laughs> it is a zine. He's literally making it with razor blades. It's He's the first zine. <laughs> the first zine. <laughs> and it is, I got to say, like, theologically, you know, I I don't know what to make of it. You know, that, that depends on the reader. I mean, the theology is, the, is what's not there. Right. Um, but narratively, it's got real problems. Oh. If you take away Jesus's miracles, you now have a Jesus who doesn't really do anything in the text. Talks a lot. He talks, you know, he talks a good game about here's what to do on the Sabbath day, but he doesn't actually go out and heal people on the Sabbath day, which is, which is what prompts the, the uh, discussion in the, in the actual gospel. Doesn't he turn over the tables at the money lenders? He does. He does it very early. <laughs> he does it in like chapter one. <laughs> it's, <laughs> I mean, because he's synthesizing, four, he's trying to harmonize four gospels. Um, he's kind of a jerk. No, I mean that, that comes early in the narrative and then he moves on, but really it's just a lot of him talking a really good game. So it becomes kind of my dinner with Andre, yeah. you know, it's, or I guess my dinner with Andrew and Peter. Right. Cause he's not doing anything. Does Pontius hey, Pilate you, show up a lot? I mean, is there, yeah, there is a trial at okay, the end. Yeah. Does Pontius Pilate <laughs> show up a lot? Like, I don't know if you know this, but in the real Bible, Pilate is not just barging in like Kramer all the time. Hello! He's Lenny and Squiggy. <laughs> <laughs> it's our wacky Roman neighbor. So, you you know, it's narratively, it's a real problem that yeah. Jesus doesn't do things, you know, because in the Bible, there's a lot of, uh, I'm going to tell you this story, and now if you're hungry, I'm going to make loaves and fishes appear, and this gives a lot of dramatic interest to this story. Well, like Spinoza doesn't do things either. <laughs> no, that's, this does not bother Jefferson. Right, right, right. He is not troubled to have a philosophy text, but today reading this like, oh boy, a new take on Bible stories, you're like, wait, these aren't stories oh, at all. they're they're boring. Right? I mean, he's telling, you know, he'll tell a parable and you'll be like, well, if I'm really invested in this man, this rich man who had a vineyard and his three employees, I guess... But what you really want is, you know, Jesus is the 
headliner here. Sure, he's an action hero. You want him out healing the lepers and making the blind to see. Right. And slipping under all the lasers to get to the to the artwork, to get what, to the Fabergé egg. What exactly do you think happens in the Bible? <laughs> I mean, it's been a long time since I read how it. Many heists, some hapers, how capers, many heists right? do you think Jesus of Nazareth does? <laughs> Between five and 15. I mean, your idea of how static a text the Bible is, is accurate. There are no capers or heists. Right. You know, at best, Jesus is going to... Um, you know, do some good deeds. Yeah. And in as the a non-drinker, water, I would, water prefer, turning into I wine. would prefer it stay water. <laughs> but in the Jeffersonian Bible, he does not do good deeds because all the good deeds he does are miraculous. Well, now let me ask you this. Does, um, does separating it all from the, um, the mythology, do some of his texts, do some of Jesus's sayings resonate more because they're not, they're not in the context of like, well, you know, okay, talker. Like for Jefferson, yeah, I mean, he would be really alienated by like every time the Bible says, you know, and then you know Jesus healed somebody, or then you know Jesus Jesus, Jesus makes any kind of authoritative claim over somebody's salvation. This is the kind of thing that would pull a Thomas Jefferson right out of the text, sure. You know, and so because he's like trying to ruminate on yeah. the, on Jesus's thoughts. Yeah, he wants you know, like because Jesus really does have some great ethical teachings, you know, and really demanding ones, you know, when he says, you know, you got to love your enemy. Like he says, Hey, everybody, even the worst guy, you know, loves his, loves his friends and family. Right. So that's not any kind of recommendation. Like you got to love your enemies. Like, I mean, that just feels like you should put it in your Twitter bio, right? Like <laughs> I wish we knew that now. Hashtag kindness. Um, or, you know, the was, Russians love their children too. It's exactly, right in the Bible. Exactly. Or when you read, I was this is interesting to me. I was looking at formulations of the golden rule. Okay. Because you know Jesus is the one who says, "Hey, this is the law and the prophets. Whatever you, however you want to be treated, that's how you treat other people." And I'm like, well, surely that's not original. And it's not. Everybody's got a golden rule back to the Mahabharata and the ancient Greeks. But almost everybody phrases it in the negative. Almost everybody is like, "Hey, if there's something you don't like, if there's something that bugs you, just don't do that." Right. And uh, as far as I can tell, it's a Jesus innovation to flip it on its head yeah, and be like, flip think, the script. think about the way you like to be treated and then actively go do those things. It is much harder. It's it's a way higher bar. Wow. Okay. Um, so. Hey, I, this Christianity has got something to go, something to say for now itself. Now who's the cool youth pastor, John, <laughs> on the show? So I guess there is some level in which, you know, these ethical teachings, like they really can hold the spotlight. Yeah. Like it's good stuff. You just wish there was more of it. Well, I guess I just wish, like, it just doesn't work as a... I mean, if, if you want to sit down every night and kind of read this and kind of in the same way that you would read, um, you know, the, the Analects of Confucius and be like, uh, how can I do some work to make this story mean something to me? Um, I think it could really reward that. Yeah. But I think it's unlikely to draw in a lot of new audience because the main character is just sitting and talking like like Andre Gregory and Wallace Shawn, you know, or, or like a, like a, uh, I guess he's, Jesus is now the first YouTuber. <laughs> Jesus is a podcaster now, basically. I mean, the wonderful thing about Socrates is that he, that the main thing that Socrates did was make uh, other people look ridiculous. And he made other people write about him. Right. So, you know, none of his work survived. So we just have Plato telling us, here's this guy, Socrates, and look what he's getting up to now. Right. He's really hilarious, though, because he, you know, he, he, he lets people indict themselves with their own words. He makes rich people and powerful people look dumb. Jesus isn't trying to do that. There is some of that in the Bible, and some of that survives in the Jefferson Bible, you know, when he wrangles with the Pharisees. Oh, right. But a lot of those discussions end with him saying, 
oh, and guess what? I win because I'm the son of God. And Jefferson loses all of that. Um, and maybe he would like a, a fairer fight. Yeah. You know, Jesus outreasoning the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But is that in the Bible? Um, some of, there are stories like that. If you took the Greek Bible and Jeffersoned it, has anybody tried to do that? Do the Jeffersonian snipping, but do it from the Ur text and then translate it into English and see if you get a different Jefferson Bible. I think the problem is we just don't have the actual Ur text. You know, we assume that yeah. there is an older, uh, there, there are older eyewitness accounts that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are drawing from. Well, what about add the Apocrypha in? Yeah. Add the, add the, all the missing Gospels. I like all the stories that are like Superboy, where Jesus is like, <laughs> you know, the, the big lacuna in the biblical text is what happened when he was a kid. So like a lot of these Apocrypha works, he's, uh, you know, he's flying around doing miracles and, sure. and uh, you know, saving freight trains yeah. in Smallville. He takes a, he takes like a, an Apple crate scooter and breaks it off and turns it into a skateboard. <laughs> Your kids are going to love it. So this was just something Jefferson did for his private study. And we would not have it today if not for Go on. a turn of the 20th century Jewish librarian named Cyrus Adler. At this point, the chosen people enter the story. You've got my attention. You know, if you have one favorite Jewish librarian from Arkansas, please let Arkansas? it be. Arkansas? You didn't say Arkansas. Oh, I thought, I just assumed that all the great <laughs> Jewish librarians were Arkansan. Now, now that you mention it, sure, <laughs> as I think through them. Cyrus Adler was a, a scholar of Jewish descent of his day in the late 19th century. In, 18, in the 1880s, he had cataloged a Hebrew library, like a library of... of uh, of texts from a Jewish collector, small, but had some good stuff and found some versions of the Bible with a lot of the good stuff cut out. And he was like, Who? in Hebrew, no, uh, I mean, this was a, it was a library of Hebrew texts, but these must've been, you know, this must've been just biblical translations. And he's like, wait, why did somebody cut out these verses? And he found out from the, the collector that the provenance is that these actually came from Thomas Jefferson's library. So the first thing he finds is the absence of the Jefferson Bible. He finds a Jefferson Bible-shaped hole in another Bible. What? No, what, what now? You're saying that— He the, found the original Bibles from which Jefferson cut his version. That someone kept. Yeah, yeah. And these were in the—and and the story goes, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, these were from President Jefferson's library. He had cut out some of the text, but these are the leftovers. Whoa. Now, so, have you been to the Jefferson Library at the Library of Congress? I have not. So— Within the Library of Congress, you go into a, you go through a special door, and it has Jefferson, all of Jefferson's books. Did that, you dream this? No, no, no. This is real. <laughs> you go through a special. It's in the back of a coat closet, and, and then also, you're in a forest. And also, I'm on a train somehow. <laughs> um, but you go in, and you know, I, I think a lot of the books were lost in a fire. Yeah. But um, the extant, oh yeah, it's, it's the previous Library of Congress before the War of 1812. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's arranged kind of in shelves as though Jefferson would have had, you know, as Jefferson would have had it arranged. And it's a tremendous... Because he may come back like King Arthur. That's right. And, and the first thing he'll want to look at is his library. Where's my library? <laughs> um, it's a tremendous place. You know, it's just a, it's just an incredible experience to be in the Jefferson Library. And it's, uh, you know, it's one of those exhibits in Washington, D.C. where you're like, well, this justifies the entire 
city. It, it justifies American government that there would be a building that would have this even, in it. Even this weird neoclassical swamp city. Yeah, it's just like, you know, it's just like the X-1 aircraft in the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. It's like, <laughs> I believe, I believe in this. I believe this town. I believe in America. So it's it's a beautiful place. I'm surprised, though. Well, go on. Finish the story. So, so yeah, why isn't it in the Library of Congress? It's because, you know, the books that were with the Bible verses cut out just kind of went to random descendants. When Cyrus Adler, our uh, our librarian friend from Arkansas, later got a job at the Smithsonian, he remembered this collection he'd found with the Bible full of New Testament holes. And he was approached by Thomas Jefferson's granddaughter, or, or you know, when some descendant of Jefferson had passed, leaving behind works that she had got from the man himself. Not not uh, Sally Hemings' descendants. No, no, this was one of his Martha <laughs> uh-huh. Martha Spawned granddaughters, I guess. Because um, you know, obviously, the the Hemings family was not proved to be actual Jeffersonian until DNA until yeah, the last twenty years. Before then, it was like something that you know we would sniff at as in a great affront whisper, to a great whisper, founding whisper. father. Um, and then DNA blew his cover. But this collection had. The result of, of the cutouts, the philosophy of Jesus, or what, what is the second one called? The life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. So it, so it had stayed in the Jefferson family. Yeah, it had not come over to the Library of Congress. And um, Adler correctly realizes, oh, this is a real find. Nobody even, like, I think there was, you know, because there were letters where he mentions this to Adams, historians knew that Jefferson had kind of produced his own rationalist account of the Gospels, but it wasn't widely known. Right, and it seemed like a, oh, ha ha. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was definitely a footnote in history, especially not having the actual text. And so Adler eagerly purchases this for, for the Smithsonian. And around the same time in 1904, an Iowa congressman named John Fletcher Lacey, RIA, um, has read these accounts of Jefferson making his own Bible, and he can't find it in the Library of Congress. He has gone through your magical door, and he's annoyed that it's not there um, because it went down through the family instead. And Adler, having just acquired it in the Smithsonian, he's eager to find, he's delighted to learn after a long search that it's actually just across the mall in the Smithsonian, recently unearthed. And he pages through it and he's like, this thing is amazing. What a one of a kind artifact. And apparently Lacey, I don't know, you you can tell me, being kind of an oddball, he decides. Well, wait a minute. Why am I the expert on oddballs? Well, you're, you're hearing this story for the first time. Oh, okay, okay. I'm going to let you be the listener stand in here. Lacey decides we need to get this thing back into print. Yep. I support it. And he persuades the House of Representatives to print 9,000 copies Boy, that of was, it. must have been an interesting speech. It actually turned into a huge controversy, if you're into the minor congressional controversies of 1904. As you know, I am. You can find, the Congress, as you would call it, you can find this in the record, you know, because he makes, look, we were, we, the Congress back in the day reprinted all of Jefferson's stuff. This one just slipped through the cracks. And of course the... Maybe he didn't tell them what was in it. The House leadership is like, wait, why, why are we doing this? And when, once people find out what's in it, it becomes, it becomes even worse. For one thing, mainstream academic publishers say, wait, why is the why is the United States Congress publishing this? Why don't we get the rights to this? This, you know, sure. this could be a moneymaker for us. Then there's a second wing of opposition. Little Brown, from, <laughs> right? All mad. I bet it's probably like the Harvard University <laughs> Press or oh, the sure. University of Virginia Press is like, wait, we do Jefferson's papers. This would be a moneymaker for us, right? Um, then it's a bunch of, you know, this being the turn of the 20th century, it's a ton of 
secular forces. It's it's um, atheists and agnostics and secularists and people of other re- religions. It's you know Jewish and, and Muslim groups. They're all saying, "Wait, why is the House of Representatives printing its own version of the Bible just because Thomas Jefferson did it?" Oh, interesting. Um, and then you've got the opposition you would expect from ministers who sure. are like, "Wait, we have a Bible. The Bible's perfect." Um, we don't need Jefferson monkeying around with it, and we don't need some new high-profile Bible that's going to... And they're not wrong. Like, Do they say that about the Extreme Teen Bible that was published in 1994? <laughs> well, a lot of them died in the... Of the... Um, of consumption. I was going to say of the, of the Spanish flu. <laughs> but if they were around today, yeah, they'd probably be equally upset by the... by the Extreme Teen Bible. Or the cool hip-hop B-boy Bible or all these other yeah, modern yeah, yeah. I don't know. It depends. Um, so there's all this opposition, but Adler gets it through the committee, okay. and he is able to get a vote printing 9,000 copies of yes, what, what is now called the Jefferson Bible. <laughs> Nevertheless, he persisted, John. Yes. And he got through. He keeps his... Uh, Cyrus Adler... Um, I think Lacey wants to put Cyrus Adler's name on it. Oh. And Adler's like, no, 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 I'm good. Like, you've got... <laughs> The title page here has Thomas Jefferson and Jesus. Right. Like you've got your you got your big names. Like Adler wisely wants to totally stay out of this. Yeah. Um, but this is great. From 1904 to so the house prints 9,000 copies of of uh, this new unorthodox Bible translation. And from 1904 to 1957, what are they going to do with it? Every new congressman is given a copy of this book by Lacey or his successors. Wow. So it becomes like just one man's crusade. Like It's, it's like a fraternity handshake. Well, I, in my garage, I've got like a couple boxes full of um, bad bobbleheads of me yeah. that I don't, that I was like, oh, for sure I'm going to want a few dozen of these. Yeah, right. And then now it's 17 years later, I've still got two boxes of them taking up space. I've got a lot of signed and numbered Long Winter's concert posters if anyone's interested, write to Ken. And the House of Representatives is in the same book. So but half they've got of these a, guys, they've got a box full of nine. They've got a room full of nine thousand. Oh, these. because they can't sell them. Really, that's not what the Library of Congress. That's not what the Congress does. Yeah, I mean, maybe they. Maybe it is available for purchase if you get a a pamphlet from Pueblo, Colorado. At the I don't gift shop. I don't know, but uh, mostly they just give a copy to each sitting congressman. Like, here's this tradition we do now. I guess this feels like a. Uh, like a collectible that I should have a, I should own a copy. Sure. Like I, there's gotta be a secondary market now that, you know, of, of the original 9,000. Yeah. That's a lot of copies. And most of these congressmen probably threw it in the trash. I'm on eBay right now, uh, but you've got a lot of recent reprintings from. Yeah. It's funny. Cause a lot of these seem like they might be from like Christian bookstores who would not love the theological content. But what if I go to highest maybe, price? Maybe first? it's maybe they're all chick tracks where it's like here we go. Here's an okay. actual here's an actual um congressional copy that's uh on eBay listed for two thousand dollars. Oh wow. Um you could almost get an old Rolex for that. Except I don't know, these appear to be the same printing. And these are just a few hundred. So I bet you could get it for a few hundred bucks. Let me look at sold items. Yeah, okay, look, here's Here's one of the 9,000 print run. This sold for just over 500 bucks. There might be a futureling out there whose who's, uh, grandfather was a member of Congress who's like, I don't want this dumb thing sitting around. There's fewer of these than there are of uh, 
bottles of cask uh, uh, 666 or whatever it was. No, that's not true. There are 9,000 of these and there are only 40 bottles of sorry, cask. It, it, sorry, I'm saying, yeah, there's there's many more of these. Sorry, yeah, I said yeah, backwards. yeah, right. Um, and you'd think the story would end in 1957 when Congress ran out of these. And, you know, again, we started to move into the the post- Right. That was also peak religiosity. Yeah, exactly. We're moving into the era which, you know, we think of as post the steady state of religiosity. In 1997, an economics professor named Judd Patton decided, you know what, it's a shame that the Jefferson Bible- there's an economics professor named Judd. (laughs) I think 100% of people named Judd teach economics. Judd Patton is definitely a pot dealer. Uh, he, in fact, is a professor of economics at uh, Bellevue University in Bellevue, Nebraska. Okay. He's currently the chair of economics there. Sure. And for some reason, he got a bee in his bonnet about the Jefferson Bible and the, the lost tradition of giving it to members of Congress. He's an economist. Yes. Sure. I don't know what, this is clearly a hobby. He's a Nebraska economist. Yeah. Pe- people have their things. Um... And he appears to be just very, I don't, you know, I don't know if it's because his, he's extremely religious or because he's a religious, um, he sounds like a free thinker. He's a bit of a heretic. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he loves the idea of the Jeffersonian Bible. And so he brings it back into print and in beginning of 1997 starts to mail a copy to every new sitting congressman. This is just a, he's trolling to make sure that the tradition continues. <laughs> and maybe now they'd just get opened by an aide who's like, is there anthrax in here? What is yeah, this? You know, totally trolling. So there was a 40 year gap when we were growing up, when congressmen did not have a copy of this weird, um, razor bladed ransom note Bible on their shelves. But now once again, thanks to Dr. Patton, they do again. So the Jefferson Bible is back baby. And I think it's not particularly readable. Yeah. Um, but no narrative flow. Just doesn't have the main character doesn't do a lot. All all the things Jesus would do, you want him to do: heal people, um, give good advice about fishing, um, provide refreshments at weddings and lectures. He just, you know, get resurrected. He doesn't. He doesn't bother with any of that. He's just got, you know, seventeen chapters of stuff to say. Well, now you're making me rethink writing my autobiography. Just make sure you do stuff like hitchhike through Europe. Don't just, don't just tell people how fun it would be. And that concludes the Jefferson Bible entry 671.LK2270 certificate number 30782 in the omnibus. Future links in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at at omnibus project. Our handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. Our address for email, which was a popular form of written electronic communication. You remember. Was theomnibusproject at gmail.com. What if the Bible has not survived in the future and somehow just this um, weird congressional artifact has? Everybody just has the Jeffersonian Bible. I believe it. I believe in it. What if a new religion started and they reconstructed all the mystical, mystical stuff that Jefferson tried to get rid of? I feel like I feel like futurelings are probably sitting down to uh, their religious service of Quidditch, and they're uh, they're thinking, I wonder why there aren't eight Bibles uh, of the Jesus Bible as there are of the Harry Potter Bible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll be whatever book there's the most of. So it'll just be. Um... Harvard, uh, 10 foot bo- shelf of books. Yeah. No, it'll be like Sidney Sheldon. 
Oh. It'll be whatever you find in vacation homes, you right. know, like rental the homes. French lieutenant's woman. Yeah, or maybe even less highbrow than that. It'll be like... Oh, it's going like to be... Like, who's that woman who writes like six books a year? It's yeah. just going to be... Or The Hunt for Red October or Yeah, it'll, it'll all be Tom Clancy books. <laughs> Every... No, it'll be, uh, it'll be Winds of War. It'll be Herman Woke. Yeah, there is a woke mob, and they love Herman Woke. Word. Uh, go find the Futurelings if you want to find Futurelings. I certainly have o- only had good experiences with Futurelings. You, you vouch for, for the them? most part. You for vouch the for most them? Part. Yeah. This is another ad read we're doing? 93% good experiences with Futurelings. Mm. Um, you can send us mail at P.O. Box 55744 Shoreline, Washington, 98155. And you can support the show by sending us either your grandfather's copy of the Jefferson Bible to aforementioned address or by supporting us directly at patreon.com slash omnibus project your monthly pledge helps us make the show and in return you get a lot of cool perks oh my gosh for example if you give if you donate at one of the more ambitious levels you are able to request a show topic and in fact today's suggestion of the jefferson bible came from norm there it is uh are one of our norm core listeners that's right thanks norm thank you norm Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus 